Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. You're not going to believe this. Oh, oh my God. God. Five stars. Five and a half stars. Papa. My dad is my hero. Grandpa, are you ready? I love a good happy ending. Oh boy. Hey, hey, The phony baloney. And a tit for tatter. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. <laughs> Introducing Angela Alexander. Our next guest, Angela Alexander, was locked in her basement for two and a half to three years. Not only was she a prisoner to her stepmother, but was able to break out of her mental prison, tell her story, and now help others. Angela, welcome. Hello, my friend. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Wow. So it's been a little bit since we connected on Clubhouse. <laughs> it has. I've got my big Princess Leia headphones going on here. They look lovely. I'm ready to go to dive deep with you. Yeah. Take me back to being locked in the basement. Yeah. It was weird because I think people have a better idea of what isolation feels like now. You know, like we can actually see, okay, that's what it felt like. But at that time, isolation wasn't well known by a lot of people. Like you're used to being able to have that autonomy, that freedom to leave a space. And for essentially three and a half years, I lacked that autonomy. I was locked in the basement. There were no toilets. There was no running water. It was just buckets. I wasn't talked to. I wasn't touched. I wasn't told I was loved. I'm a really extroverted person. And so like my main thing is I like to bounce off of other people. I love to be loved. I love to, you know, my love language or physical touch and words of affirmation. And I got none of that for years. And during times where it's important to feel those things. Right. Weren't you an early teen? Yeah. So things started getting weird when I was 12 and then the basement time started when I was 13. How did that happen? I was living with my dad and my stepmom. My stepmother had lived in a residential facility with adults who had autism previous to this. So it was a large home. It was like a mansion essentially. And they kept all the adults with autism upstairs and they were not allowed to come downstairs. So when my stepmom maybe felt like maybe she felt like I wasn't of the quality that she wanted to be around or something like that. She categorized me as being a person with essentially treating me like I was a person who had extreme behavior disorder or some other kind of things like that, except in a less humane way. And so she just kept me locked in the basement instead. She was like, okay, when they were first talking about building a house, it was this idea of, okay, there's going to be a separate entrance for Angela. We will keep her separate. And I kind of knew that that was what was going to happen. But what it turned into was we've got this unfinished basement. We're going to put a plastic sheet up on one wall and we're going to put some old curtains on another wall. And we're just going to keep her in this area. She's not allowed to leave this space. She's not even allowed to like roam the basement. Like she has to stay in her little corner. And so to her, in her mind, this made sense because I had been diagnosed with ADHD when I was seven. And so she said, oh, she has learning disabilities. We need to keep her away from sound and keep her away from distractions. She needs to only focus on schoolwork. So that's it. 
And oh my God. Did you go to school? I did. So my dad and my stepmom are both primary school teachers or elementary school teachers, I guess we would say in the U.S., so it was important for me to go to school so that it kept up this image of a normal family life. But I mean, here's the thing. I would crawl out of this window in the morning, walk to school, act as normal as I possibly could, walk back home, crawl into the basement, and that was it. That was my life. And then during summertime in the U.S., you know, you have two and a half months, essentially, where I didn't have school. So I didn't really see anyone. And summertime was hard. Summertime was really hard. Like I do feel like there were a few times where I could have had like some psychological breaks. There was one time where I kept hearing sirens happening. And so I just assumed that the next time I was going to come above ground, that like the whole world was going to be like flattened and destroyed. And I came back out and everything was just normal. And it was like, holy crap. I just heard all of that. Like that's so disturbing as like a 14 year old. Did you get invited to other people's houses like for play dates and stuff? And how did that work? I kind of let my friends know that I'm, I'm always grounded. That's, those were the words that we use to make that sound normal is I'm grounded. I'm, I'm not allowed to do anything. Oh, what did you do? Oh, um, I let somebody borrow my shoes once at a campground, you know, like, it, like the, the rationale is always a bit crazy. So I would just tell my friends that I was grounded. So I would say, no, you know, I can't do this or that. And that's why people at high school told their parents that something didn't seem quite right. And how I got kind of eventually extracted from that situation. There was one time a girl called my house and she said, Hey, I have a question on this paper. Can I talk to Angela? And like my stepmother basically she wouldn't let her talk to me, but she kind of like said, no, Angela's not here right now, hung up. And then I got in the most trouble. Like, how is this girl, how does this girl know your number? How does she think that she can call you? Like just interrogated. That was the time where I got held up against a wall by my throat and told that I was worth less than dirt and that I shouldn't ever make someone think that I'm to be talked to essentially. And yeah. What's crazy is that she was an educator. Yeah. Yeah. Of young children. Did she ever have trouble with any of her students? I mean, there's a pattern that has occurred here. And I thought that I was the only person in the pattern. And then now being outside of the pattern, other people have contacted me and made me realize that I'm not the first one. I was actually, in some ways... I was the youngest person who has been the most severely abused, but it was mostly adults that she would kind of do some of this isolating to. There was a mother who emailed me once and she was like, hey, I read your story online and it actually helps me put a lot of things into context. She said, my daughter had bladder problems and a learning disability in school. She kept asking to go to the bathroom and your stepmom said, no, she could not go to the bathroom and that she needed to sit back down. So her daughter went over and my stepmother was standing up and she pulled her chair out and my stepmother fell onto the ground. Like it was like one of those 1980s, pull the chair out. And like the girl wasn't actually trying to like pull a trick on her, but my stepmother was so angry. She called the parent in and basically said that children like her daughter should be seen and not heard. She was gonna do nothing in life. And just try to tell a principal about it because they were never going to believe her side, right? So, I mean, just really 
toxic. It's really interesting to live a life where somebody wants to break you, wants to break you. And for that person to be a teacher, that just doesn't even make sense to me. Did it come from her upbringing? Yeah. So her mom and dad, her dad is 95, still alive. Her mom passed away like maybe 15 years ago. Her mother was one of the few people who kind of realized what was going on with me. She was just sweet as honey, such a sweet human. But I understand that when she was younger, she was much harder on her children. You know, like time and age had like softened her a bit and There was one time she came down into the basement and she just held me and she was like, this is so hard, isn't it? And it was kind of that first moment where I was like, wait, maybe this isn't because I'm a bad kid. And then she just like held me, cried, and then she left and locked the door behind her. (laughs) That was it. Wow. That sucks that you felt like you were a bad kid. It's easy to think that, isn't it? Like, man, if I could just be good enough, if I could just do what they want me to do, you know, like I'm a true believer in, I will be who you expect me to be. If you expect me to be crappy, you know, then I'm probably not going to live up to any expectations. There's so much to that though. I feel like all kids are like that, right? Like if you see good in them, then they're going to perform better. It's been clinically proven. And now the work that I do, like my very first thing is to help a child believe in themselves again and to help the parent love their kid again. How do you do that? (laughs) So I work with listening difficulties and I am a doctor of audiology and I specialize in auditory processing disorder where people can hear, but they have troubles understanding what they hear. And a problem with this is that it looks like a child is intentionally not paying attention, intentionally not trying to follow instructions, but it actually is just difficult for the kid. So for me, I want the parent to see things the way that I see them because I have clarity with it. So I need to have them get that clarity and to realize that the child's not trying to do this, that it's not the child's fault. It's not the parent's fault. This is just something that's happening neurologically, but we can treat it. So just kind of getting everybody on the same page, creating a plan together. And, and it is fun to watch the child go from like kind of hunched over to feeling comfortable and confident and to watch the parent go from like smacking their kid to not, not literally smacking their kid, tapping their child and trying to control behaviors to actually being on a team with them. When somebody like typically brings their child to you, are they just fed up? The number one reason for referral is actually reading difficulties. So that's the main reason somebody comes in, but there's usually a thread of a parent just not knowing what to do next. You know, like I've tried being harder on my kid and I've tried being softer on my kid. I've tried, you know, like sticker charts and, you know, all of these things. They've tried every, everything. Like I've even had kids who are like five or six years old who have like life coaches because their kids, parents think they're lazy, you know, and it's not that they're lazy. It's their brain does not understand what is coming in through their ears and they cannot put together what's going on in their world when they can't understand what's happening. It's so interesting. I saw like an interview that you were doing where there was a woman who got distracted even by background noises and things. Mm. So it was hard for her at work. Right? So we see this in adults and that woman in particular, I'm thinking you're talking about my case study and we call her Jackie. 
and she's wonderful. What a cool human. So when I first met her, she was like, okay, I work in HR. I need to hear, I can't hear in background noise. I have to watch TV with subtitles because I don't, I can't follow what's happening. I love jokes, but jokes, and I love to laugh, but I can never figure out what's funny in movies. So yeah, when she first came in, she's just like, you can tell she's like, when I'm asking her questions, she's having to turn her head and figure out what I'm saying. And she's like, it's taking a lot of effort. And then we did like three months of therapy, one hour a week and just really basic stuff. It's like not rocket surgery, what we do. All of a sudden her scores go back within normal limits and she has a a completely changed quality of life. That is incredible. Are there things that we can do? I mean, God, we're all in isolation now. And I feel like there is going to be seriously like PTSD and reintegrating into society. Yeah. Let me just say from the auditory perspective, some people are finding it easier to be isolated than to always be out in the real world. And then other people are really struggling with that isolation. So if I can just be honest with you from my perspective, especially as an extrovert, if I'm speaking to any extroverts here about what is the best way to like reintegrate yourself in society when you've gone through a long period of isolation. And I would say there's two things. Number one, creativity, like creativity and allowing yourself to be festive with the smallest things ever. Being creative within yourself and even in the small environment you're in awesome. And then the second thing I would say is once it is more safe to go out into the public, pushing yourself to do something that's maybe makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable each day, as long as it's relatively safe, just pushing yourself just a little bit, feeling that discomfort, but also doing it. So when I was in New Zealand, we went through seven weeks of hard lockdown. We did not leave our homes. And then we had no cases in New Zealand. So we went from hard lockdown, no one seeing anyone to reintegrating. And maybe it was four or five days of, ooh, this feels so strange to be around people again too. Okay, actually, this is fine. This hedonic adaptation, no matter how good or bad things get, it will come back to normal. But we don't know what the long-term effects are going to be. You also said that something led to you being taken out of your home. Yeah. Talk to me about that. Whoa. I had a tight friend group at school who had absolutely no idea what was happening in my life. They had no clue. No one knew that I was locked in the basement. I looked different than my siblings who were at the same school. They, I had two step siblings that lived upstairs who are younger than me. You know, I had like ratty clothes and I was cutting my hair with dog shears and stuff like that. But so I looked different compared to the other family members. And my friends started kind of talking to each other and talking to their parents. And some of them, some of their parents worked at the school and they started saying something's just not right. And so one Christmas, Christmas of 1998, one of their mothers stopped me in the library and she said, I'd really like you to come spend Christmas with us. And I was like, ah, no. I mean, my family would never allow me to go be treated someplace like I was human, like no, no, I don't think I can do that. So that also kind of went into it. On the 10th of January, 1999, I got called into the office. My high school counselor was like, hey, I need to talk to you about some things. You should be a part of the National Honor Society, but you're not. 
why are you not a part of the National Honor Society? I was like, oh, I don't have any extracurriculars. She said, you can use anything. And I'm like, I don't really have any. Conversation continued. And she said that I was acting like a battered woman. She was used to working in a battered woman's shelter. And the way that I was acting and reacting to the questions she was saying seemed not quite right. And so then she said, I'm going to call your parents and ask them why you're not on National Honor Society. (laughs) I was like, please don't do it. She was like, just going to leave a message on the answering machine. If you don't like it, you can erase it. It's like, I can't, can't erase it. Why can't you erase it? Because I'm downstairs. Go upstairs. I can't go upstairs. (laughs) Why can't you go upstairs? I'm like, the door is locked. She was like, you're locked in your basement. At that moment, I felt completely exposed. I'd never said that out loud. And I was so scared because I didn't, I'd been hiding it from everyone for so long. And she was like, okay, okay, you're locked in your basement. Are you ready to leave your basement? I said, no. So I went back to my class. I'd been in her office for like three hours. <laughs> she just would not let me go. She was like a dog with a bone. She was like, okay, I've given you a really shortened synopsis. So then the next day she brought me back in and she was like, this is a woman I want you to meet. And her name is Michelle and she's your social worker. Michelle was only like four years older than me. She's like 21 years old. I'm 17 at this point. And she said, she was like, we need to ask you again. Are you ready to leave your basement? And I said, oh my God, I've got chills all over my body right now. (laughs) I'm like on the edge of my seat and so nervous for you. That must have been completely terrifying. It was totally terrifying. I mean, I was freaked out. and Like I scarier at them, I, than the basement. It was so scary. So scary. And so <laughs> I told them no, because I mean, what if it, what if nobody believes me? What if I get stuck in there? And if I get in trouble again, like it just got more and more severe every time. Like what, what else could they take away from me? I went to my locker and my friends happened to be standing there. And I was like, can you go back into the office with me? So Jen... Jess, Jenny, Rob, I pulled them back into the office with me. And I said, okay, I think I'm ready to go. My friends are here. I I think I can do it. And Michelle hadn't left yet. And they're like, okay. So we sat down, we hatched a plan. They're like, you're going to be taken care of. Like someone's family had a car phone because this is before cell phones, right? So I had to take this car phone with me. I had to take a camera to take pictures of what the downstairs looked like. And I had to like, yeah, we had hatched this plan of I was going to take this bag and go put it in someone's trunk. And yeah, it was intense. And then the police came and then I got escorted out. And my dad and my stepmom got contacted by my high school principal. My high school principal said to my dad, she was like, we need to talk about your daughter. My dad immediately said, I need to bring my wife. And she was like, yes, I would recommend that. And basically... In that room, they had to voluntarily give me up. And they said, if they didn't voluntarily give me up, it was immediately going to become a criminal investigation. And then they decided because I was 17 years old, that I should be the one to decide whether or not charges were pressed against my family. At that time, I was a daddy's little girl and it mattered more to me to have a relationship with him in the long term than to have them go through the political system. And so I decided not to press charges. One thing you did say though on Clubhouse is that there was a moment for you where you're like, okay, but my daddy let this happen. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, he did. It's weird because, I mean, I wonder if he's somehow, if he was like being domestically abused a bit as well. Like, I don't know if I can totally trust my ears for reasons I tell you before, but I, I thought I heard him get hit, you know, at least once. I don't know. I don't know. Like he passed away in November of last year. Oh my God. I'm so sorry. That's so hard. It's over, you know, like, yeah, I'm recovered from my trauma. I'm recovered from the rejection of my father, even after this terrible abuse. How did you do that? That's amazing. I will honestly say I am not over the fact that he missed out on an opportunity to know who I am as a human. Because as an adult, I'm not that different from who he was. It would have been a lot easier to get over him if he wasn't such a great dad for my first 12 years. He was an awesome dad. He was one of the favorite teachers in our small town, you know, like, which is hard for people to believe how could this actually have happened. And my dad had, what's the right word? My brother put it perfectly. My dad was dangerously passive. My brother was trying to kill some ants at my dad's house while he was really sick last year. And my dad doesn't even have ant killer. You know, he's like, he is so passive. My brother actually messaged me. He was like, our dad was one of the police officers who stood by while George Floyd was murdered. You know, sometimes passivity is so bad that it hurts others. And it hurt you. It did. I mean, one of our roles as a parent is to protect our kids, but he made a choice. Have you ever gotten an apology from your stepmom? No. Let me tell you how I actually recovered. And it's because I put the ball back in my court. And the way that I did it was I had posted, I went public for this the first time in 2013. I posted on Facebook. It took seven months for me to hit share. And then I got like 300 shares of my letter that I posted on Facebook. And like back then 300 shares was unreal. It was crazy. It kind of like went like wildfire. And all of a sudden I had like news agencies contacting me and whatnot. It was unreal. Like I was so worried that I was going to get rejected by other people. I I thought there was going to be a lot more negativity thrown my way. And I could not believe the amount of support that I got. And then I got an email from them and they were like, we're going to need you to take that down. And I said, okay, all right, here's the deal. I will take that down. If you do these different things, I sat down and I was like, okay, I'm going to come up with 10 different activities that they could do to simultaneously get to know me now as an adult and make amends for what has happened. So there were 10 items in there. Like they didn't want me but they didn't want my mom to have me either. So one of the items was they needed to apologize to my mother for taking away a child that she actually wanted. They needed to explain to me from their perspective what had happened, like why they put me down in the basement. They had to read a couple of books and like give me summaries of how the books made them feel and how they were gonna apply it to their daily lives. I was like, you guys are teachers and you can appreciate how much it can help a person evolve to have exercises that push you to think outside of yourself. So I'm like, all right, if you get all 10 items done, I'm going to take that letter offline. I was having so much fun. My husband was like, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm having fun. This is so cool. 
feel like I'm taking control back. Yeah. And then I said, you have 30 days to respond to me with what of these items you are going to complete in the next 12 months. It has already been 13 years. You have had long enough to think about this. You need to tell me what number of items you're going to complete, or I'm going to post this letter on Facebook too. Oh my God. Yes. That is amazing. It was one of the best feelings (laughs) to press send there. And I, yeah. 29 days pass, hadn't heard from them. And then they said, we're going to need more time. We are speaking with our counselor about this. Okay. So very clearly using the word counselor so that I can figure out this is legal counsel or this is a psychologist. Right. I was like, you know what? I'm going to give you 15 more days, but you've had plenty of time. We went 15 more days. Didn't hear from them. So then I said, you know, I'm going to move on from this, not because you deserve it, but I do. And it was so nice to still have the ball in my court. I have not published that letter online. It is one of my crowning achievements. (laughs) Wow. I love that. Mm. I'm so proud of it. And you know what? Up till his dying day, if he would have gone through and made a concerted effort there, I would have still walked away from even talking about this anymore. But I realized that I did not deserve to be ashamed of it anymore. That really shows that really no matter what parents do to mess up, that their children so badly want to love their parents, which is kind of nice to know. A friend of mine was like, one of the great things as an adult is being able to find your own unique way to screw your kids up. My kid is like half of her body is on chocolate because that's like all she'll eat. I do feel really grateful that I am fully recovered from this and, and that I had the ability to be fully recovered before I had a kid. That's a mind F all in and of itself, but people aren't used to a woman being an abuser. Yeah, that is super rare. Like you don't hear about that as much Mm -hmm. and you never got a why. Funny enough, she actually sent a Valentine's day card to my brother and included one for me inside it this year him to send on and he was like I didn't think you actually wanted that did you and I'm like no no so I reached out to somebody else who's close to her and they said yeah I think she's trying to find gentle ways to reach out I can completely understand now how someone feels when they've been abused like I love and care for people deeply and there is not a single shred of emotion that I have in me for her wow Like every moment I want to tell my kid how good she is and how much I love her and how much I value her and how much I believe in her. What a lucky kid she is. She's so much fun. She is full of beans, I tell you, full of beans. Wow. And when you moved on and were rescued, what was that next home like? Oh my God, she's amazing. So Kay Kiger is my the name of my foster mom. Um, so it was January of my senior year. She worked at the high school and I had been her teacher aide for a short period of time. But, you know, I kept quite a lot of adults at a distance. So she didn't know me well. Um, and she was like, we're going to be getting to know each other pretty well, is what she said. And it's like, yeah, yeah, that'll be good. She had lost her husband four years prior to that, very suddenly from cancer. So we had both kind of been going through hell for four years, kind of in a parallel way. 
And then all of a sudden, you know, I was the only kid that she had in her house at that time. She was a little bit older and she has two daughters. One's an optical physicist and the other one is this orchestra director. And they're like, you know, they've done really well in their lives. So here I am coming along to her and she was like, oh, I'm too old for doing prom planning committees and stuff. But anyway, she, she was just absolutely my rock and she helped me believe in myself again. She used to tell me, you are such a good kid. I would do the smallest thing. Like you just close that door so gently, Angela, you are such a good kid. How did I get so lucky to get you? Like over and over hundreds of times a day, telling me how good I am, telling me how proud she was. And she sat down with me one day and she said, you know, Angela, if I were your mom, I'd want to know where you are right now. I think we should get in contact with your mother. My mom, she had been pushed out of the way in a really toxic fashion right before I went into the basement. She thought I was living a life of privilege. She had no idea I was going through abuse. She had written letters to me, letter upon letter, and they would sit at the top of the stairs. I would never get to read them, but it was just kind of their control thing. Like there's no way you can get through. It was just this wall. And so she had no idea. She went through a huge bout of depression, not being able to see me or connect with me. In a lot of ways, she was abused too. Contacted her in February of 1999. And she and I are both, I mean, we're best friends now my foster mom too, like all these women who surrounded me and helped me realize, you know, there are still a lot of good people in the world. I'm so glad you were able to reconnect with your, your mom. Oh my God. How did she respond to finding out that you were treated that way? It's been so hard. That must've been devastating. Devastating is the exact right word for it. She's so angry and hurt and frustrated and just felt powerless. Like I can't quite communicate just how severe the mental boundaries were in this family, but I'm so glad that delusion can no longer exist when there's only one person who believes the narrative. That is really powerful. And in the work that you're doing now, have you been able to help kids that don't know how to communicate the things that they're feeling and going through? Absolutely. I would not say that I've seen a whole lot of kids that I think are necessarily being abused per se, but I have definitely seen a lot of kids where parents just don't know how to help them anymore and don't know how to like team up with them. And then also I have worked with adults who were previously abused where their parents didn't get them, where they screamed at them every day, you know, like, what's freaking wrong with you? Why can't you understand what I'm saying? You know? And I remember complaints that my dad and my stepmom thought that I wasn't paying attention and that I wasn't following instructions. Like I would get in such deep trouble for not remembering one instruction and I don't remember hearing it to begin with. So I think this is something that was difficult for me. I think it's maybe the main reason they got really angry and frustrated with me. Now I get to be on the other side and I get to be the person I needed when I was younger. That is remarkable. And I'm so glad that you came out on the other side. And wow, thank you so much for being open to sharing this. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. 
Okay. So one thing I do that's kind of fun at the end of all of my episodes is I let my interviewees ask my dad a question. Cute. That's awesome. Like what do you wish your dad could have like known about you? I sent my dad a letter for his birthday and because my dad and my stepmom cared more about plants than people sometimes, I had it delivered in a plant. I said, sent my letter to him to say goodbye. And the one thing I wish I had told him about was auditory processing disorder, you know, because this is something that I wish he knew and understood because it actually makes a lot of things in our lives make more sense. So auditory processing disorder is a hearing difficulty that has less to do with the ears and more to do with the brain. So basically a person can have normal hearing sensitivity. So they can hear all the beeps when they're nice and quiet. They have a hard time recognizing, understanding, and remembering what they hear. How can you treat it? Through therapy. So it's something called auditory training. And it's just essentially like leg day, but for your ears. So we put people through a series of exercises and we can actually fine tune the ability to understand what you hear. I honestly wonder if my dad has ever known anyone that was in a situation like yours. Yeah. And I want to be mindful of your time, but just one more question. Like, what did you think about while you were down there for that amount of time? Like, holy cow, you're creative. You're an extrovert. I'm an extrovert. Like, were you getting creative down there? Oh my God. Yeah, definitely. So there was one day where, you know, I had done something. And so I wasn't going to be allowed to crawl out of the basement to watch the 4th of July fireworks. And I was really sad about it at the time. It was only a couple months into the basement. So I made one of those, I took a shoebox and pieces of paper and two pencils and I drew fireworks on them and I had a flashlight. I put it up through the back part, turned on the flashlight and pretended that I was looking at fireworks. Yeah. So I was creative with myself. Um, There was one time I went to go into the basement window and it had closed completely and I was locked outside and it was cold and it was snowing, lots of snow on the ground. And I went to get like my dad's truck was sitting there and I was so relieved when I opened the door, like I noticed that the, it was unlocked. I got into the truck and I could turn the radio on and the University of Kansas men's basketball team had a basketball game happening and I listened to the play-by-play and it blew my mind. And basically I lived for listening to Kansas Jayhawk basketball. I would sit there and I would write all of the stats as I was listening to them. Basically that saved my life. It gave me something else to focus on. And then last January, I published a story about that. And Scott Pollard was one of the players. He heard about it. He played for the NBA and um, he contacted me and took me to a basketball game in March of 2020, right before the world changed. And we sat courtside and watched a game together. And what a cool way to go full circle, right? What a beautiful, special moment. I love that. I'm totally going to tag him in this. That's awesome. Yeah. Are you able, like I've interviewed people that have gone to prison for 15 years. And one thing that that person said to me was, 
he appreciated waking up in a clean bed. Like he appreciated the sounds of the birds. He appreciated taking out the trash for his new wife. Like any, you know, like very little things that he didn't have for so long. He is so grateful for and still like really notices the little things. Do you feel like you still notice little things like that? Yeah, it's so funny. Like lots of people might keep something like that close to them so they can feel how bad it is. But like, if I take my day-to-day situation and I think of like, you know, what's happening here. And then I pull that close to me and I feel how different every cell of my body (laughs) is compared to then. Like, yeah. Like being able to flush a toilet, be able to walk downstairs and open, open a refrigerator, being able to go out and do things, being able to meet new people, being able to talk to people and not feel terrible about myself. Anyone who has lived under domestic abuse or violence will know that it is so weird to free yourself from those chains and not have to live under someone else's opinion of you. Unbelievable. Wow. Well, thank you so much for giving us a glimpse into that. I mean, I really hope that this helps someone. Yeah, I hope so too. And please keep in touch. Let people know how they can connect with you. If you want to check out more things about auditory processing disorder, go to my website, apdsupport.com. That's A as in Apple, P as in Paul, D as in Delta, support.com. And you can learn more there. I'd say success for me from this podcast would be one person realizing they had an auditory processing difficulty and getting referred out and getting help. I love that. Thank you. And hopefully I'll see you on Clubhouse sometime soon. Yes, you will. I'm sure you will. Aw. Now, let's switch it over to Grandpa. Very interesting interview, Angela and Rena. To be locked down in a basement for two and a half or three years during your teen years is just a, a terrifying act. And yet, the stepmother, it's almost like the story of Cinderella, isn't it, is keeping her down there because she has some type of learning disorder. Here's a girl as a teacher doesn't even understand that this girl needs extra attention and help to get through it. Her solution, because she's worked with adults with certain issues, is to isolate them, keep them away from her other children. It's almost like she thinks that if they don't work within her realm, that these are useless people and can be mistreated by actually doing the isolation, by actually locking them up or putting them in a separate area instead of making things better makes things far worse. The person who really needs the examination of being a mental case, if I'm allowed to say that, is the stepmother. And how do you like how she got away with it? But this is the funny part of an abusive situation. Abuse of a girl or a boy, especially a young person, whether they've been molested. And the fact is, is that being rejected by people that were abusing her or left her, she had a mental stigma about that, where actually sometimes even the Hearst girl that was being taken for a ransom, then they started robbing banks and she's become a bank robber. It's where you almost, because of the type of attention that she was getting, they actually start having behavioral issues and actually start copying the abusers that are abusing them. And even in this case, 
where she had a wonderful relationship with her father. He gets divorced. The mother even has no idea because he ends up with the custody and gets remarried to someone that is actually abusing him. The Better Call Daddy Show is now proudly sponsored by Expand Laces. Because who wants to be tying shoes anymore? As a mom of four, I needed a no-tie system. And my dad's not getting any younger either. Sorry, dad. You need a no-tie system too. Expand Laces are good for mommies and daddies. Use the code BCD10 at expandlaces.com. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. Hold up. 